Well, good morning again. How did you go with your homework last week? Anyone get to 20 things that they could praise God for or were thankful for? Say yes. Oh, there's a couple of hands going up around the place. Well, I actually got a, um, I got a uh, text message this week, a uh, little photo of uh, a person's list. I was really encouraged by that. I've got a, uh, a uh, list given to me here as well. I'm going to read a couple of these things and I'm going to ask you just for a second. I give thanks to God for the Bible, for his word. I give thanks for my parents who were believers and followers of Jesus who brought me up in that same way. I give thanks and praise to God that I met and married a girl who was a Christian and for our wonderful married life together. I give thanks to God for a wonderful church family and also for his blessing in good health. Now I give thanks for the fact that uh, God is with me every day, that my darling wife is with the Lord. And I give thanks to God for the ability to go and be able to visit people and share fellowship with them. Some wonderful things, isn't there? Wonderful uh, list. Anyone else got any? Come on, yell them out. Things that you can be thankful for. Jaden, awesome, good stuff. Thank you. Praise God for that, and praise God for technology. That, yes. Amen. Come on, I'm sure there are lots of other things we can be thankful for and praise God for, isn't there? God knows the future and can be trusted. God knows the future and can be trusted, that's right. Amen. What a wonderful country we live in. Your wife. Good on you, Harry. For Medicare, yeah, for sure, yep. Beautiful world in which we live. I thank God that I was able to open my eyes this morning and get out of bed. <laughs> hey? For the air that we breathe. For his many, many ways in which he's displayed his goodness to us, but especially through his love for us shown to us through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I encourage you to keep sharing those things over morning tea this morning, sharing how God, how things we can praise him for and be thankful to God for. I want to read to you this morning from the last chapter in Nehemiah, chapter 13 we're in today as we conclude our preaching series in this wonderful book. We're going to read through the whole chapter. 
On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all the kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favour, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. 
and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashab the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we want to thank you uh, afresh this morning for the fact that you are a God who is always faithful. We see in this passage again of your people being unfaithful and yet you provided a man in the person of Nehemiah to come and help your people to be reconciled to you, to live in ways which please you. Lord, we're reminded afresh this morning of our failures in serving you and being obedient to you. But we thank you that you have provided a man in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in order to pay the penalty for our sins, that we ourselves could be restored to you, to receive forgiveness for our sins, to be cleansed from them, and that you have placed within us your Holy Spirit to help us live lives which honour and please you. Lord, we didn't deserve any of this, but you in your mercy and your grace have poured it out on us regardless, and we want to thank you for that today. So now as we open your word, please be our teacher. Help us to, uh, to learn all the things that you would have us learn today from this passage together, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the... Uh, uh, shows that we event- we sometimes have on in uh, in our house uh, might watch sit down and watch the news after the news if you switch it over a channel there's a uh, program called Bondi Rescue anyone familiar with that at all about these uh, lifeguards in uh, Sydney on uh, apparently it's uh, Australia's most famous beach most popular beach apparently Bondi Beach I've never been there myself but uh, they say it's a pretty spectacular place. But, uh, you know, they get thousands upon thousands of people who go down there and uh, they flock to this place and they they get in the water and have a great time in there. But these lifeguards are kept incredibly busy day after day after day rescuing people. Uh, There's a lot of people who come from other countries around the world who come to Bondi Beach to, I guess, say that they've swum there in the water. They get themselves in all kinds of, uh, of peril because of the dangerous surf conditions. And uh, these guys are often, these lifeguards are often called in to, uh, to rescue them. 
one of the things which, uh, you know, that sort of takes me back a bit to my childhood and, and myself going swimming at, uh, at some of the beautiful surf beaches we've got here, particularly up on the, uh, the Sunshine Coast. And I remember as a kid, you know, going, uh, you know, mum and dad taking us to the, uh, to the beach and, you know, going out and swimming. And one of the things I'd love to do was, you know, just sort of dive in under the waves and, or, or body surf on the waves and things like that, perhaps some of the things that uh, you've liked to do that in the past. But, uh, you know, you sort of get in the water and you're having a great old time, but then you sort of, all of a sudden you stop and you kind of look up just to check to see that mum and dad are still there and, and you look across at the beach and you see, where have they gone? They've disappeared. They're no longer there where I thought they should be. And then all of a sudden you have a look further up the beach and there's mum or dad at the beach, you know, a little bit, you know, quite a ways up, sort of waving for you to, to come back, come back to where you should be, you know? And, of course, what's happened is that the current of the water has just slowly but surely taken you down the beach. It's sort of slowly drifting you through the current and taking you towards a really dangerous rip that can take you right out into the water. And, of course, the danger there is that uh, you could certainly drown. That uh, drifting reminds me of, uh, of this particular passage and the fact that not just talking about you know, drifting in currents of water but spiritual drift... As Christians, we need to be careful of what we call spiritual drift. And one of the examples we've got, a very classic example we've got of that, is here in Nehemiah chapter 13. Back in Nehemiah 12, you might recall, we were only there last week, it was all about celebrating and rejoicing, wasn't it? The people were celebrating the dedication of the wall and that was a, a reminder of the people of God's faithfulness, how you know, God had enabled them to rebuild the wall in such an incredibly short space of time. This amazing task that they would have thought would have taken them months and months really only took them just 52 days. You know, amidst that, God gave them victory over the enemies, those who would seek to oppose the work and, and didn't want the, the wall rebuilt, but God had given them victory over them as well. They'd been reminded afresh of God's goodness to them, that the city was now restored, the people had security and safety, and so it was a lot to praise God and be thankful for. You know, and if, if I was writing the book of Nehemiah, I think I would have finished there at the end of chapter 12, wouldn't you? Particularly with the words of the, these, these words, and it says, And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. We see that in, verse, in, in chapter 12, verse 43. What a great point to end the book of Nehemiah. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. End of story. Wow, that's a nice, feel-good type of finish, isn't it? But of course, we've got chapter 13. We've got chapter 13, and it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, hard to follow the timing of events through this passage. It sort of talks about on that day, and then it says before that day, and that sort of thing. But, uh, but we're just going to work our way a bit through this passage this morning. We're going to pick up on a few things that remind us of these dangers of spiritual drift for the people of God, and things which we ourselves need to be mindful of and be careful of, but also some things that we can put in place in our lives to help us uh, to, uh, to um, counteract this spiritual drift as well. What we see here in the, in the opening three verses, it appears to start off in the same vein as we left it in chapter 12, where the people hear the word of God and they respond immediately in obedience to it. Look at that in verses 1 to 3. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses... 
in the hearing of the people. We're probably uh, looking at uh, that book of Moses can refer to the first five books of our Old Testament, what uh, is often referred to as the Pentateuch or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's probably particularly looking at uh, reading from Deuteronomy because it speaks about the Ammonites and the Moabites and this person called Balaam. If you want to read about those, by the way, you can read about that in Deuteronomy 23. You can also read the initial account of that back in Numbers uh, 22, I think it is 22 to about 25. But here the people are hearing the word of God preached to them and in response to the word of God, they want to obey it immediately and there is, there is things put in place straight away to bring the people in line with what God's word says. But from verse 4, we begin to see a vastly different picture. Initially, we read that an enemy of the people of Israel, Tobiah, has been given preferential treatment and unprecedented access to the chambers of the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, you might remember uh, this name, Tobiah. He's come up frequently throughout the book of Nehemiah as one of the enemies of the people of God. You go back to uh, Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 2, you'll hear about uh, Tobiah and, and Sanballat and Gershom, the Arab. They were the, the three instigators, if main instigators, if you like, of uh, trying to incite opposition and violence towards the people against them rebuilding the wall. So this person, Tobiah, has now all of a sudden been able to worm his way in or weasel his way in right there into the very heart of the worship of the people of God. And he's been allowed to do that by this man, Eliashib, who is a priest who has actually been appointed as caretaker over these particular chambers. Now, what we see here is that, um, you know, these um, places, these chambers were actually meant to be store places, store places for the offerings of the people, the, 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 the grain offerings and the, uh, the, the wine offerings and the oil offerings and all these other things would come in and they would be held in there as part of the worship of God. They would be used in the worship of the people of God. But they were also used as, uh, as provisions for the people who worked in the temple as well, for the priests and for the Levites, for the singers and for the gatekeepers. So all these materials that were brought in were not only used for the worship of God, but they were also used to provide for these particular people who assisted the people of God in their worship. But of course, now that Tobiah has come in and taken place, there's no room for these things anymore. And so what we see is that the Levites uh, and, and the singers, they're actually forced to, re- to leave the temple and to go back out to their homes and back out to the fields in order to sort of try and survive, to sort of try and grow crops themselves in order to survive. And what this then meant was that there was a neglecting then of the worship of God's people and, and also a neglecting of the oversight of the spiritual, uh, uh, the spiritual oversight of the people as well. So we, you know, we get this kind of picture that, uh, that just in this one act, it has an incredible ripple effect within the, uh, within the people and within the city. And when we get to verse 15, we also see that the people then neglect their commitment to observing the Sabbath. The Sabbath was ordained by God as a day of rest. Now, on that day, God said that no one in the, uh, you know, no one in the community, not even their animals or anything like that, was, were meant to work. Instead, the day was set apart. That's why it was called a holy day. It was set apart for remembering the gracious provision of God and to, re- and to remind the people of their absolute dependence upon God. 
It was meant to be a day where the people gathered together collectively in the worship of God, in praise of God. But instead, what we see in this passage is that now the people have forgotten all about this and instead they're just going on conducting business like any other day. That the, the, the Sabbath had just been lost you know, in, in the rest of the week and people were, were trading and, and all this sort of stuff was going on there in the city. It, was, it had just become commercialized. And in that, the people were becoming just like their neighbours. Look at verse 15, it says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. You can see they're bringing all this stuff in in order to sell it and to, you know, to, uh, to get money for themselves. And Nehemiah says, I warned them on the day when they sold food. And it said, Tyrians also who lived, so these are uh, residents of the, uh, the city of Tyre, had also come, they had taken up residence themselves in the city and they'd bought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself, Nehemiah says, there at the heart of the people's worship, there at the place that God had promised to make his name great, where he would promise to, to dwell amongst his people, there in the midst of you know, that, that most sacred of places, Nehemiah says the people have just turned it into this shopping centre. You know, a giant Westfields had basically sprung up in the middle there of Jerusalem. worldliness had begun to take a hold in this place but not just in the commercial life of the people but what we also see is it also begins to take hold in the social structure and the family lives of the people as well look at verses 23 to 24 it says in those days also i saw the jews who had married women of ashdod ammon and moab and half of their children spoke the language of ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of these other people. In these verses, we see that the people began to intermarry with foreigners, so much so that what was happening is that the distinctives, those, those distinctives of the people of God, of the Israelites, were beginning to be lost. The children themselves were even un unable to speak their native language. Isn't it amazing how quickly that we see the people fall into this downward spiral of disobedience and sin. But what's also quite startling here in this passage is that the practices of the people, that the people of God were now actually engaging in were the very same practices that they had promised not to do just back in chapter 10, not very long ago, where they had made that written covenant with God promising him that they would be faithful to him and that they got their leaders to sign. This is the passage that Mark preached on only just a, a couple of weeks ago. Look at the end of chapter 10. Just turn back a couple of pages. Chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes.' 
Now listen to verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We won't intermarry with those nations around about us, God. We promise. In fact, we take a curse and an oath not to do this. In verse 31, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Here the people had, had vowed and declared, God, we will not do this. And yet two, three chapters later, what do we see the people of God doing? Exactly that which they said, Lord, we just won't do that. We promise not to do that. Now, the thing that uh, sort of stands out again in this passage is that it was it, that all this stuff was going on whilst Nehemiah had gone back to Babylon. We see that in verses six and seven. He'd been in Jerusalem for around about twelve years, and he'd finally gone back to report to the king, the, the Babylonian king Artaxerxes to uh, give him a report of all that had gone on there in Jerusalem. We don't know how long he'd been back there in Babylon. He'd obviously been back in there for some time because it was just the journey alone itself to Babylon and then back to Jerusalem again would have taken a significant, would have taken a number of months. But it was during this time that Nehemiah is no longer there that the people start to go down this downward spiral into disobedience and sin. And we read that when Nehemiah comes back, he's absolutely horrified of what has taken place and he quickly sets about writing those practices again. And I don't know about you, but there's some pretty uh, kind of... Uh, Nehemiah doesn't just... Um, he's not gentle in how he goes about doing this. He's not gentle in how he goes about doing it at all. In fact, uh, the first thing he does is he goes and all of, ne all of Tobiah's furniture, he basically throws out onto the street. He gets it out of those temple chambers and he throws it back there out onto the street. And then he confronts the, noble, the, the nobles and officials who had been negligent in their, beauty, in their duties and he puts them in their place. He threatens the merchants and the traders with violence. When Nehemiah says, and, you know, or I will come and lay hands on you, that's not to pray for them. <laughs> that's a threat of physical violence. If you come around here again, look out. You're going to be in serious trouble. And he also confronts the Jewish men who had taken foreign wives and it says that he cursed them he beat some of them and even pulled out some of their hair. That's just, just, not just this hair, but this hair out of their beards. That's pretty severe stuff, isn't it? And he also, in verse 28, we see that he chases the grandson of the high priest. Now, this guy is the head religious guy in all of the people of God, and he actually chases the grandson of this guy out of the city for marrying a foreigner as well. Why was Nehemiah so forceful and deliberate in what he did? It was because he saw the danger of what was taking place, that the holiness of the people of God was being undermined. 
and Nehemiah knew that the people of God were meant to be different. They were meant to be different. They were meant to be living examples to the surrounding nations of what it, would, what it was like to live in a very special and treasured relationship with God. To show the surrounding people of, not a, of, of what a, a tremendous blessing it is to live in relationship with God and to see God's hand in their lives, to see his provision, but also in the way in which those people lifted up and glorified God and gave him that place of honour in their lives. But instead, what we see is that the, 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 the people of God were becoming just like the nations, the pagan nations around them, and they were going down the same path that their ancestors had taken, a path that led them to be judged and punished by God by being taken into exile in Babylon all those years ago. Look at verse 18. Nehemiah says, Did not our fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So what we're seeing here is what's happening amongst the people of God is this case of spiritual drift. The, the, the currents around about them, the currents of living life in that kind of context and, and the worldliness, those currents of worldliness had come in and they had slowly but surely picked up the people of God and carried them away from God and from those holy lives which God had, had ordained for them to live. They'd become casualties of that pervading current of the surrounding cultures. They'd taken their eyes off the stable and secure reference point of God and his word and now they'd found themselves in a place where they should never have ever been. And sadly, folks, this is not just uh, something which we find here in the Old Testament, but we see it right the way through the history of the people of God and even in our day as well. Sadly, it's a stark picture of many churches and denominations today and of many Christians' lives. You know, spiritual drift is so dangerous because it kind of creeps up on us without, even, without us even you know, knowing that it's actually even happening to us. It's like that proverbial frog in the kettle. You know, you, you can't take a frog and place him straight into a pot of boiling water. He'll jump straight out. But if you put him in a pot of cold water and you slowly bring the heat up bit by bit by bit, he doesn't even realise that the temperature's changing until it's too late. Well, in this passage, we see a few key indicators of things that lead to or contribute to spiritual drift. And the first is compromise. All through this passage, we see example, examples of the people compromising on the things of God and on their beliefs and on their, their obedience to God. They were allowing things and people that work against the purposes of God to have a place of importance and influence in their lives. And folks, compromise happens when we grow less and less serious about holiness. When we're not prepared to make the hard calls of foregoing something that we might think might bring us happiness and pleasure 
And we do that because it you know, doesn't appear harmful to us at, at the time, but we do it also even though God's word says that it is not right or proper for the people of God. Now, this last week in our, uh, in our Connect group on a Tuesday night, we were reading through Ephesians 5. I just flip over just very, very quickly to Ephesians 5 and we read these words about what is proper for the people of God. Verses 3, to five, 3 and 4 and then verses 7 to 10 of Ephesians 5. Paul writes, and I'll begin at verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Remember that, beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul goes on to say, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place for the Christian, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And then verse 7, it goes on to say, Therefore do not become partners with them, those who practice these things. For at one time you were darkness, but now, having come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are light. You are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Apostle Paul writes. That is what is right and proper and fitting for the people of God. But of course, the people here, we see they'd lost sight of that. And instead, they'd gone down this, this path leading back into the darkness again. Compromise. Compromise. But spiritual drift also occurs when godly leadership is absent. Now, one of the noteworthy things here in this passage is that the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the slippery slope that we see in this passage started when Eliashib, the priest, allowed Tobiah to take up residence in the temple courts because he himself was influenced by his relationship with Tobiah. Throughout Scripture, we see that the essential characteristics of leaders are meant to be spiritual ones rather than ones focused on skills and abilities. We see that in 1 Samuel 16 where, and we've mentioned this on numerous times, where Samuel is, is, is told by God to go and anoint the next king of Israel after Saul. He goes to the house of Jesse, the first person he sees, Jesse's eldest son. He looks at the man and he thinks, this is the guy because he's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. You know, he's got everything the world would see as being, you know, good about him. But God says, no, that's not him. And instead, God chooses David, the smallest who later we read that is a man after God's own heart. In the New Testament, we, hit, we read passages such as 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 7-9 about the overseers of the church, those, that position of leadership in the church. And Titus says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, 
upright, holy and disciplined. There's no mention in there of particular skills, work skills and abilities that the people have, but rather characteristics, godly characteristics. And it goes on to say, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Whether it be in our nation, our churches or our homes, Godly leadership is essential to help counteract spiritual drift. And we need, to re, you know, we need to remember that. We need to thank God for our godly leaders around about us. But we ourselves need to be ready to, to, to carry out that leadership role which God gives to us, whether that be as parents, whether that be as ministry leaders here in the church, whether it be in, in places of leadership, even out there in the secular world, in your workplaces, we need to be God. We need godly leaders. Compromise, lack of godly leadership, very much you know, two things that this passage highlights. But let's just quickly turn our attention to perhaps some of the helpful ways that this passage identifies to help us counteract that spiritual drift and its effects. The first is this, that the word of God needs to have priority in our lives. We see that in verses 1 to 3. We need to be intentional in allowing the word of God to speak into our lives because nothing can replace time spent in God's word in terms of our spiritual growth. If you're wanting to grow spiritually, there is no more fundamental or foundational thing that you can do than to be in the word of God and meditating upon it and allowing it to permeate your mind and your heart and your lives day by day by day consistently. But as James reminds us, not just to be hearers of the word, but to put that word into practice in our lives, be doers of the word. The word of God needs to have priority. Secondly, we need to be ready to confront sin in our lives and we need to be brutal in dealing with it. We see this, you know, in Nehemiah's example here in this passage. He's ready to confront sin and he's ready to do everything humanly possible within his power to, you know, to get rid of that sin in the people's lives and to get them back on track, focusing on the lives that God has called them to. In the New Testament, Colossians 3 speaks about this. It's verses 1 to 6 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then Paul goes on to say, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, whether that be sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account all of these things, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says, put to death. Do you treat sin like that in your life? Are you ready to put those things, those kind of behaviours, those kind of attitudes, are you willing to put those things to death in your life with the help of God through his Holy Spirit? That's what, what we, we need to do. We need to be ready to confront sin in our lives and be brutal in dealing with it. Thirdly, we need to have people in our lives who we give permission to hold us accountable. 
Notice that Nehemiah puts in place people to watch over the proper practices and conduct of the people. Verse 13, it's, he says uh, here, And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. They have a duty to, the, to, to, to their brothers to, you know, to help provide for them, to make sure that these things are done correctly according to God's ways. We need to have people in our lives who we give permission to to hold us accountable. You know, whether it be like you know, the dad or the lifeguard on the beach calling us to let us know that we're not where we should be, we've drifted away, we need to have people who we give permission to to say to us, you know what, you're not where you should be. You know what, there are things in your life at the moment which I believe God is, would not be happy about. And you need to turn from them and come back to God. We need to give, have you, have, have you given permission to people in your life to do just that and finally we also need to make a conscious decision of the will and of the heart to fear God throughout this passage we see on three occasions Nehemiah after after dealing with a sin he's he's there's three short prayers that he gives in verse 14 verse 22 and verse 31 and God says you know remember me oh my God concerning these things you know, do not wipe out my good deeds, he says in verse 14, that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And there are, um, obviously the next couple of uh, prayers are very similar along those lines. Some have sort of taken this to mean, you know, Nehemiah is probably a little bit self-centered here. He's just, you know, saying to God, oh God, look how good I've been, you know. Don't forget me in this. Don't forget how good a job I've done. But that's not what is being said here. What's being said here is Nehemiah sort of saying, Lord, he says, you know, we, I want your name to be lifted up and, and, and glorified in all of this. I want the people to follow after you and, and to have you as, as, as the foremost person in their life, the one of supreme place in their lives as, as you have in my life, God. And I want you to please can, you know, enable us, all of us, to, 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 to be able to do that. We need, to have that, we need to make that conscious decision of the will and of our hearts to fear God and, uh, and, uh, and to have his will and purposes at the forefront of our lives. Have you got those things in place in your life? We see here that, you know, that Throughout uh, this whole passage, we see that the people have kind of, you know, they've, they've, they've gone really, really well, but then all of a sudden they've gone on this downward decline. And, we, and, and sadly, I don't know about you, but it kind of reminds me a bit about my own life. Now, there are times where, you know, the, 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 the thing that me and God, we're going really, really great, you know, and... and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking in a way which I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being as obedient as I can to God and his ways. And, uh, and then all of a sudden something happens and I find myself way, way down the beach again, you know, from where I should be. What this passage reminds us is that life can be like that here, this side of eternity. Life is very much like that. But what I want us to remember, uh, particularly as we, as we finish up and as we, we close our time together this morning, is this. 
is that, yes, our lives will be a bit like that. Sometimes it'll, it'll appear as though we're taking three steps forward and two steps back or vice versa in our spiritual lives. We may have the very best intentions in terms of being faithful and obedient disciples of Jesus, but we will fail and sometimes we will fail often. But folks, that should not serve to disillusion us or dishearten us. For what we also need to remember is that Jesus himself has paid the penalty for all of our sins and that his forgiveness is guaranteed. That we are not at risk of God giving up on us. How many times have the people of God failed him back here in the Old Testament? Time after time after time after time after time after time after time. You get the picture. And yet God still sends people. God still is faithful to his people. God still endeavours to work with his people and, and restore them and renew them. We ourselves are not at risk of God giving up on us because of our, of, of our faith in Jesus Christ and the fact that we are united to him, that God has promised, that we read in Philippians 1, that, that the, word, the, the good work of salvation that he began in us, he will bring to completion in us. That we can be confident of. And so what this pattern should evoke in us is a deep yearning for that day when we, f- we will finally be free from these bodies of sin and bodies of death where we will no longer struggle with these things anymore but instead be set free and rejoice with Christ for living with him forever and ever free from all this stuff for good. In the meantime though, can I encourage you to do this? I want you to encourage I want to encourage us all to humbly pray that God will send more times of revival and reformation on his church. Will you commit to pray for that and in your life? And that we might along with the prophet Habakkuk say these words, "Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord." Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In other words, Habakkuk is saying, Lord, I've heard of all the good things you have done in the past. Will you do it again? Will you do it again, Lord? Can we pray that God will do that, that, that again in our lives? That he'll do that again, not just in our individual lives, but in the life of his church, but not just here in North Pine Baptist Church, but in his church across this nation, in this church, in his church across the world, that God will do this again, that we will see people turning back to God in great revival and great reformation, that we'll see people turning back in repentance and confession of sin and instead seeking to say, God, we are yours and we want to live for you and for you alone. Amen. We so desperately need that, don't we? We so desperately need that. Let's pray. Lord, we recognise that Spiritual drift is very much a thing and, it, and it, it is very much a thing in our own lives. And we're sorry, Lord, for the fact that we ourselves are guilty of compromising, compromising our faith and our trust in you, of compromising our beliefs in you. 
We're sorry, Lord, for the fact that we have allowed others to influence us in such a way, Lord, that it has taken us away from you. And we're sorry, Lord, for the fact that we have allowed leaders in the church to do this. And Lord, we pray that you will forgive us. Lord, that you would help us to turn back to you, that we will see the extent and depth of our sin. And instead, Lord, that we will we will repent and confess of our sin. Lord, we will turn back to you and there will be a, there will be a, a massive turning back to you across our nation, Lord. Where hearts will be touched, lives will be changed and transformed. But Lord, start it in us. Start it in our hearts. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Amen.